Welcome to Season 2 of the Preoccupation Podcast. This season explores the mid to late 19th century of Ottoman Palestine, and, uh, and it takes us on a journey with stops in Istanbul, Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, and, of course, everywhere in Palestine. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, first of all, thank you. You can do so by following the link in the episode description. You can also find me on Instagram at preoccupationpod. Otherwise, enjoy. Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians, there never was, there never will be. This is going to be a this is going to be a big episode. So I'm not going to waste any time here. I'm just going to pick up right where I left off. Last episode, I tried my best to make it clear that the new notable class that emerged in the second half of the 19th century is a notable class that had expanded horizontally. And what I mean by that is they had successfully transcended familial and sectarian divisions to build a new, bigger, notable class. And some new notable families were added to that space at the top of the food chain. Many of those families were, were Christian families who now found themselves with, I guess what you could call a disproportionately important seat at the table. And I think while most of that sounds generally good, it is important to keep in mind that the new notable class did not expand vertically across class boundaries. And it is to the Palestinian lower classes, to the peasants, that I now turn my attention. In season one, I took you on a tour of, of early Ottoman Palestine and introduced you to Palestine's peasant population. The hundreds of villages that dotted Palestine's countryside were ruled by powerful peasant clans who used their fighting capability to maintain a kind of balance of power, a kind of equilibrium with the merchant families of Nablus or the notable families of Al-Quds. Stuart McAllister and, and E.W. Masterman, writing well over a century ago, and they summarized the political landscape of the Palestinian countryside by saying the following, quote, each district of the central mountains was domineered over by certain chieftains, or sheikhs, belonging to great families who by their skill in war, their wealth, or their traditional position, were able to keep themselves on top. End quote. Now I also mentioned to you in the same collection of episodes that these same peasants, along with the Bedouins as well as the urban notables, 
they formed a kind of triangulated network of power and alliances where each social class depended on the other for something. And well, something I haven't mentioned yet is that over hundreds of years, these urban, rural, Bedouin networks, they congealed into these powerful alliances, alliances that eventually formed two distinct tribal confederacies, the Qais and the Yaman. The Qais and the Yaman are two tribal confederacies whose real origins go back thousands of years, even before the revelation of Islam. With the arrival of Islam to Palestine came the acceleration of Palestine's linguistic and cultural Arabization. Gradually, families all over Palestine began to brand themselves as either Qais or Yaman. I guess you could say in a sense that their pre-existing feuds were now Arabized. These tribal alliances, they were serious business. I mean, what a family would raise the red banners of the Qais or the white banners of the Yaman, urban, rural, Bedouin families, tribes, they would assemble themselves and prepare for conflict. These alliances were so powerful that they were even able to transcend sectarian divides. Historian Weldon Matthews, he writes, quote, Palestinians in the hill areas around Nablus and Jerusalem, as in other parts of greater Syria, had for centuries joined political factions that took their names from the pre-Islamic Arabian tribal confederations, the Qais and Yemen. The clans that joined these alliances did not typically do so on the basis of commonalities of lineage, and the adherents included townspeople, Fallahin, and Bedouin, as well as Muslims, Orthodox Christians, and Catholics. In the hills around Jerusalem, during the violent and unstable first half of the 19th century, Christians and Muslims allied in the same factions, and Christian Qaisis fought Christian Yemenis, as was the case with Muslims in each faction. End quote. Now the reason why I need you to know all of this is because the Abdul Hadi clan of Nablus, they were members of the Qais confederacy, while the Tuqans, they were members of the Yaman. Now the Abdul Hadis, you may recall, they allied themselves very closely with the regime of Muhammad Ali Pasha. And in 1840, the same year that the Egyptian state retreated and the Ottoman Empire returned to power, a massive civil war broke out in Nablus. A civil war which, over the course of nearly two decades, was fought along Qais and Yemen divisions. Now in past centuries, the Ottoman state, they would have been fine to let these families just fight among themselves. I mean, they may have even desired this healthy competition. But these powerful tribes stood in the way of the Ottoman state's effort to extend its direct control into the peripheral provinces of the empire. These powerful confederacies required access to the use of force in order to exact revenge on their rivals. But the modern state, modern state cannot allow such a thing. 
And so, in 1858, an Ottoman governor by the name of Thuraya Pasha, acting on orders from Istanbul, took a side in the conflict and crushed the Abdul Hadi stronghold in the fort of Arraba. Thuraya Pasha had at his disposal a complete Ottoman battalion, about 600 soldiers. If that doesn't sound like a lot, just, just keep listening. They had a pretty daunting task ahead of them. These countryside forts that I just mentioned, like the, like the Abdul Hadi Fort of Arraba, many of the major families of Nablus had forts like them. And our modern, frankly orientalist perception probably, probably conjures up an image of a quaint little shack sitting atop a hill, but contemporary travelers describe just massive structures, similar in pomp and circumstance to the medieval palaces of the Medicis or the Borgias in Italy. The Nabulsi Palestinian historian, Azad Darwaza, described them as 2,500 square meter palaces capable of housing a thousand peasant fighters, servants, and other people all allied with the tribe. And so what ensued in the mountains of Nablus were bloody battles. It took an act of great and overwhelming force, as well as some local support, for the Ottomans to crush the fort of Arraba. For the tribes that supported the Ottoman effort, I doubt that they could see it at the time, that the destruction of the fort of Arraba was just the, just the precursor to the beginning of one of the most significant events in the history of Palestine's rural population. In fact, it was one of the most significant events in the history of Palestine, and that was the disarmament of all the major peasant families. A project which began under Egyptian rule would now be completed by the Ottoman authorities. To the Ottomans, the disarmament of the peasants was not just helpful, it was necessary. A state requires a complete monopoly over the use of violence to be able to collect taxes freely and deliver large-scale services, and the rural sheikhs of Palestine threatened that. So all over Palestine, the peasant families who had managed to rearm since their initial disarmament in 1834 at the hands of Muhammad Ali Pasha, fiercely resisted this new Ottoman effort to disarm. And when you consider that they numbered in the thousands, one would imagine that a single Ottoman battalion could only inflict so much damage. But they were up against what I think was the single most devastating technological innovation in the history of asymmetric warfare and indigenous pacification. And that is the repeating rifle. The Ottomans came armed with the ability to fire multiple rounds in quick succession, and this was a game changer. This is the technology that finally tipped the scales against the Comanche in America. And in a manner not at all dissimilar, the repeating rifle wreaked havoc upon the Fallahin in Palestine. They devastated them. Throughout the 1860s, the Ottoman state succeeded in disarming the peasants, 
even Nablus, Jabal Nar, the mountain of fire, this hill of thorns that stood proudly on the unruly fringes of empire, even Nablus was made to kneel. Now to be clear, the Ottoman state did not desire to annihilate or ethnically cleanse the Palestinian peasant clans. I mean, more than anything else, they wanted to tax them. But they also wanted to reinvent them in the hope that they would make a transformation similar to that made by the urban notables. And to that end, the Ottomans made administrative changes to the rural districts as well. They introduced the position of the Mukhtar, kind of village headman, who would preserve the prestige of the peasant clans by maintaining their status as a direct part of the Ottoman bureaucracy. In keeping with the Ottoman state's effort to create a more equal society, villages with a Christian population would have two or more Mukhtars, one to represent each religious community, and the Mukhtar would report to a Mudir, a kind of you know, a kind of representative for a group of villages. Now, the Mukhtar had two responsibilities, both of which needed to be handled very delicately. So on the one hand, the Mukhtar was to convey the concerns of the locals through the Ottoman bureaucracy, right up to as high up as the Sultan. But on the other hand, the Mukhtar was also held accountable by Istanbul for making sure that local taxes were paid. Well, one thing that I know I haven't spent much time on this podcast at all is, is the fact that the late Ottoman Empire was an infamously corrupt place, and the peasants knew that. And so even though the peasants knew that the Mukhtar was their official representative to the state, they were not at all inclined to part with what little wealth they had in return for the theoretical ability to air their grievances to the Sultan. Namali, just pause for a second to say that these taxes, these taxes that are being imposed upon the people of Palestine, they're being imposed upon a people who are already stretched very thin. The peasant resistance to taxes was not just an expression of Palestinian pettiness. I mean, historian Alan Doughty notes, quote, the average Falah typically gave up over two-thirds of the value of his crops in taxes and rent before calculating his own expenses. This helps explain the often noted hostility to outside authority. End quote. When you factor in the pre-modern farming methods and unpredictability of harvests, you realize that this really was not about peasant greed. They had every right to resist the increased taxation that was being imposed upon them. Well, believe it or not, a non-compliant peasant population was just one of the problems that the Ottoman Empire's tax-collecting mechanism had to face in Palestine. They actually had a much bigger, more fundamental obstacle standing in their way. In Palestine, and elsewhere in the empire, the Ottomans are going into their own provinces kind of blind. You need to realize that in the mid-19th century, 
the Ottomans have very little data to tell them anything about the local population. At most, the Mukhtars in the villages gave them one tiny set of eyes and ears. But eyes and ears are actually not enough. The Mukhtar and various levels of administration could provide a bit of qualitative data regarding complaints, local sentiment, any local challenges, and they could, they could report back to governors about discontent and general unhappiness. But what the Ottomans needed was quantitative data. They needed numbers. They needed statistics. They needed names. They needed dates. And the Ottomans had none of these things. And they had none of these things because until the 1830s, the Ottomans had never done a census. A census is a massive collection of information that creates the possibility, the mere possibility of data-driven decisions. Without a census, public policy is little more than guesswork. How are you going to make decisions? about transport, about sanitation, about schools, about any of that without knowing the ins and outs of your population. Census data, maps, demographic surveys, these things are the neurons of the state. They carry the information back to the state so that this behemoth institution can make data-driven decisions. The census is one of the most powerful tools of the state. All the way back in 1834, while Palestine was in revolt against the Khedive and the entirety of greater Syria was under Egyptian rule, the Ottomans conducted their first ever census in the territories that remained under their control. Well, you won't be surprised to hear that when Ottoman rule returned to Palestine, the Palestinians were not inclined to provide their personal information to some bureaucrat. And the reason is actually quite simple. The Palestinian peasants did not see how giving up their personal information would benefit them in any way. Elusive promises of state infrastructure, the long-term benefits of a modern education system, these are things that are a difficult sell to many rural communities today, and that is with a 300-year precedent for the state to rely upon. And in the case of the Palestinian peasants, they knew full well how sharing their personal information could negatively affect them. They knew that the Sultan wanted to know, first and foremost, who to tax. And secondly, the Sultan wanted to know who to conscript. And they were right. This was at the core of what the Ottomans wanted to know from their subjects in Palestine and elsewhere. What made matters worse, from a local perspective at least, is that as part of the Ottoman state's centralization and expansion efforts, the census takers and tax collectors would not be native sons, like Lahar al-Umar or the Mutasallims of Nablus. These bureaucrats may not even speak Arabic, and this was designed to aid in strengthening the central government's grip over the peripheries to make sure that it would be all but impossible to see the rise of another Zahir al-Umar or Jazar Pasha or Muhammad Ali Pasha. Collecting taxes or information by people whose loyalty to the state was unquestionable 
made sure that the jobs could be done more efficiently and ruthlessly. The only sympathies that a bureaucrat should have should be to the Sultan alone. Now, I know I keep saying this, and I'm going to keep saying it, but in order to understand the significance of what I am describing to you, you really need to try and transport yourself to another time, a time where the idea of some stranger taking some of your hard-earned income in the name of the Sultan or in the name of the state would have been relatively new. And in the best of circumstances, the vast majority of Fallahin are subsistence farmers barely scratching out a living. And all of this is being done in the name of building some nation-state, the benefits of which are not entirely clear. So I figure you can see the tension. The state needs information in order to roll out its various state-building initiatives. It needs information in order to make data-driven decisions, such as how much they should expect in taxes and from where. It needs to know where to build schools and how many to build. If they are subject to another Russian invasion, like what happened in Crimea in the 1850s, the Ottoman state would like to know how many soldiers it can draw upon from the various provinces. But the Palestinians do not trust this state, not the institution, because that doesn't really exist yet. It's in the process of being, crea being created. I mean, they don't trust the very idea of the state. The very idea that they will surrender their sovereignty to this massive institution that has their best interest at heart is a tough sell. And yet, the Ottomans need a way to figure out precisely who lives where. And all of this brings me to the single most significant law introduced throughout the entire Tanzimat period. I want you to listen to me very carefully. If you are listening to this podcast with one eye locked on the present, if your primary goal is to understand how Palestine arrived at where it is today, then believe me when I say that what I am about to tell you is the single most significant law passed during the Tanzimat. As far as Palestine is concerned, nothing, nothing compares to this next part of the Ottoman reforms. In 1858, the Ottomans passed a land reform law. It was an attempt to transform the way that land ownership worked throughout the entire empire. Now, up to this point, land was communally owned, something we discussed in season one. Individual peasants generally did not own individual plots of land. In fact, much of the land they lived on was, legally speaking, the dominion of the sovereign in this case, the Sultan. In Canada, this is what we call crown land. Peasants had what's called usufructuary rights. They lived on, worked on, slept, and died on the land that was technically owned by the Sultan, but practically owned by them. 
The problem with this kind of land ownership is it made it really hard to determine precisely who lives where. Now, for hundreds of years, this didn't matter all that much. But when you are trying to conduct a census in order to conscript more soldiers or tax more peasants, you want to know precisely who lives on a particular plot of land. And this continues to be the case today. I mean, think about how many touch points you have with the state. Transport authorities, health authorities, revenue agencies, ministries of education, all of these interactions are used by the state to keep track of who you are and where you are. And nearly all of these interactions are taxed in some way or another. The state, by design, wants to know as much about you as possible. Well, if the peasants won't volunteer that information, this land law may incentivize them to do so. The land law required that land which was once communally owned must now be registered with the state as privately owned land. Now, this sounds innocuous enough. The privatization of land is central to our modern existence. One could even argue, with over a century of hindsight, that this could be beneficial to the peasants. I mean, after all, wouldn't many of us love to have a plot of land registered in our name? But I want you to think about what this looks like from the perspective of the peasants. Imagine some bureaucrat comes and tells you, Good news, your land is going to be registered in your name. To which you respond, and what does that mean exactly? And he says, well, now you will own this land. To which you say, but I already own this land. My family and I have lived on it for centuries. In that cemetery, on that hill, you can find the graves of my long-dead ancestors. To which the state employee finally concedes, look, this way we will be able to tax you more effectively and drag your sons off into two decades of military service. And no, not your blind sons, not the leper, not the disabled sons. No, your healthiest and most productive sons. Now this dialogue obviously never happened, but it didn't need to. Because that is what the peasants heard when representatives of the Sultan came around to suggest that they register their land with the state. Nothing better demonstrates this tension than a scene from Tulkerem from this era. During this time, the Ottomans had instituted a land registration process called a tapu. When Sheikh Yusuf Jarrar came face to face with a land registration official coming to just do his job, he unsheathed his sword and roared, quote, Here's my tapu. So that gives you a sense of how some of the peasants felt about registering their land. And the fear of conscription really was such a huge concern for the peasants of this time. Wars were increasingly far away, increasingly deadly, and for the Ottomans, increasingly unsuccessful. And it was a greater concern for Muslim peasants than it was for any other group. Conscription was another thing that just changed so radically during the Tanzimat. For hundreds of years, the Muslims of the Ottoman Empire were the preferred millet. The Christian and Jewish subjects had to pay a tax called a jizya, which affirmed their status as protected but unequal communities. Now, importantly for this part of the conversation, the jizya also exempted Christians and Jews from serving in the Ottoman military. The push for equality meant that the Ottomans desired 
and equality of responsibilities as well. So Christians and Jews would be required to serve in the Ottoman military. It is hard to put into words just how unpopular this was with the Christians and Jews of the empire. Now, truth be told, the Ottomans themselves weren't very enthusiastic about arming and training Christian subjects, particularly in an environment where nationalism is just bubbling up all over the place. So, a bedal fee was introduced that allowed the Christians to pay their way out of service. And the bedal fee was, surprise, surprise, almost precisely the same as the jizya. Muslims could pay the bedal fee as well, but historian Farid al-Salim shows us just how out of reach this was for Muslim peasants. He writes, quote, Women, children, clergymen, and men over the age of 75 were exempted from the military service. A Muslim who wished to be exempted from the military service paid the government the amount of 135 non-Muslims for their military exemption tax. End quote. Now that was far more than the peasants could afford. So if you were a Christian or a Jew, you could evade conscription pretty easily. And if you were a member of the religious or political or urban elite, you could also evade conscription either through your status as a clergyman of sorts or because they could afford to pay the exorbitant bedal fee. I mean, or through less reputable means like bribes. The peasants, though, they were out of luck. And in many cases, they were the ones who most needed the exemption. For every able-bodied male taken off to war, that was one set of hands removed from the fields. That was one laborer gone. Well, in a particularly bloody campaign, you may be talking about dozens or hundreds of young men being dragged off. For the peasants, the personal and economic impact to each and every family was devastating. The possibility of being injured or killed was incredibly high, and those who did survive often came back unpaid and so effectively penniless. Becoming a soldier became something so terrible that the social convention of the time meant that families essentially prohibited their daughters from marrying returning soldiers. So what do you do? What do you do if you do not want to lose two-thirds of your income to fees and taxes? What do you do when you don't want to see your sons get dragged off into faraway wars? You look for a way out. And the notable families the ones who adapted so well to the pressures of modernity, the families of Al-Quds, of Yafa, of Beirut, of Halab, of Damashq, they provided that way out. Christian and Jewish mercantile families, part of the new nobility, along with European investors and the Muslim Arab notables, extended an olive branch to the overtaxed and now disarmed peasants. Register your land in our names. We have the resources to avoid conscription. Our sons will not be in any danger. And rather than pay taxes to the Ottoman authorities, you will simply pay rent to us.
So long as we own the land, they said, nothing will ever change for you. You will continue living, working, sleeping, breathing and dying on the same plot of land. So long as we never sell it. It is worth mentioning that what I am describing here was the best case scenario. In many other cases, urban notables outside of Palestine who simply had the ability to grease the palms of the right government officials were able to register plots of land in their names without ever having seen the land or having spoken to its owners. Sometimes they were able to buy the land for a fraction of its real value. And this is precisely what happened in 1869 when the Sarsouk family of Beirut, one of these new Christian mercantile families, purchased 17 villages of the Merj ibn Amr Valley from the Ottoman government for 20,000 pounds sterling. That's the equivalent of about 2.4 million American dollars today. The Sarsouk family purchased an area 230 square kilometers, roughly the size of Boston, for what it costs to buy a house in Vancouver today. Regarding this purchase, historian Muhammad Muslih writes, quote, The yield of the land proved very profitable for the Sarsouks. The peasants cultivated the land for them, paid a tenth of the produce, a fixed amount per dunum, apart from the tithe they paid to the government. In the tradition of large estate owners, the Sursuks were also involved in money lending at high interest rates. Owing to the wretched conditions of the peasants, members of this wealthy Beirut family were able to impose their rate of interest and the loan security they wished. End quote. I've seen no evidence that the 4,000 villagers who lived there at the time were consulted in any way about this purchase, and it would be generations before the impact of this purchase would be felt. The impact of the 1858 land law was summarized by one historian as, uh, as the following, quote, the land law of 1858 was intended to ensure tax revenues of agricultural lands and regulate an existing market inland. Lands that had been effectively, if not legally, under the control of peasants, however, often became the private property of urban notables. Peasants feared the extension of government control and taxation and military conscription and rarely registered their lands while urban notables with greater resources and legal know-how manipulated the registration process to consolidate their holdings. What this means is that by the end of the Tanzimat, the peasants who still actually own their land are now increasingly few. Much of Palestine's land is, by hook or by crook, registered now in the names of notables in Beirut and Damascus. If you know anything, I mean, if you know anything about what happens in Palestine in the 20th century, then you know how significant all of this is. 
And if you don't know why this is significant, just keep listening to this podcast. I'll get there eventually. Anyway, the process that saw the peasants seeking the financial and social protection of the notables had a name, and it was called the Alja or Luju system, which means seeking refuge. If you've ever wondered if foreshadowing could exist in real life, there you have it. Through the process I have just described, thousands upon thousands of peasants who had lived on, worked on, and died on the same land for hundreds and hundreds of years found themselves legally dispossessed of that land. By the end of the Ottoman era, 50% of privately owned land in Palestine would become the personal property of just 250 families. With hindsight, you can see pretty clearly that the future was going to be pretty rough for the peasants, and that their relationship with the urban Palestinians was going to be far less equal than it was in the early days of Ottoman rule. And there is perhaps no place that captured the simultaneous meteoric rise of the notables and the cataclysmic fall of the peasants like the booming city of Jaffa. The Ottoman campaign of disarmament, coupled with the presence of tax collectors and the fear of military conscription, drove many peasants out of their villages in the center and north of Palestine and toward the coastal plains of cities like Jaffa. By this time, Jaffa already had a decades-long reputation as Umm al-Gharib, the city of strangers. It was a welcome place for people from all over. Well, this particular chapter and migration to the city happened at a pretty interesting time because Jaffa was experiencing an economic boom that was unprecedented in the modern history of the city. Months and months ago, I told you about Palestine's cotton industry. Well, with the influx of low-price American cotton produced on the backs of African-American slaves, the influx of that cotton into the international markets, Palestine's cotton industry collapsed. But the infrastructure built by the merchants throughout the 17th and 18th centuries remained in place, and Palestine continued to be plugged into the global economy. One of Palestine's products that Europeans found particularly attractive was a product that has become synonymous with pre-colonial Palestine, and that's the Jaffa Orange. From the onset, Palestine's citrus industry emerged with an export market in mind. And the product, in this case, was perfect for exporting. The Jaffa orange had a thicker peel, which allowed the oranges to stay fresh for longer. And this made it an ideal cash crop to pack onto a ship and sail across the Mediterranean. The orange, which became known as the Jaffa orange, could theoretically be grown in other cities in Palestine, but Jaffa was the ideal site for this industry for a few reasons. For starters, Jaffa and its environs sat on fertile soil that was ideal for citrus cultivation. It was a coastal city making it perfect for export, 
though I should add that the port itself that was used by the Palestinians was actually quite ancient, and the rocky coast did not allow for huge ships to dock very close. So ships coming into Jaffa would have to stay a few miles out, while tiny boats would race back and forth loading the ships. But perhaps the biggest reason why Jaffa was such an attractive location was its access to another kind of water. Rainfall in Palestine was neither consistent nor predictable. And these plants, these citrus plants, they required constant access to water all year round. Well, it just so happened that Jaffa sat on extensive reservoirs of underground fresh water. All that needed to happen was for farmers to dig wells and use an ox-powered system to draw water from underground. And this could sustain an entire grove. This combination of factors, the access to a port, the exportability of the product, and the presence of underground fresh water led to an economic explosion in Jaffa, allowing it to overtake Nablus as the economic heart of Palestine. Now, in the second half of the 19th century, Palestinians from all over found themselves selling their land or their businesses in order to set up shop in Jaffa and join in the citrus boom. All right, well, so far that sounds like a happy story, right? I mean, surely Jaffa's peasants could turn their fortunes at least around by capitalizing on this lucrative industry. Surely some of the peasants who are coming from the center and north of Palestine, surely some of them would be able to get in on this, right? Well, the obvious answer is yes, some could. And some could find work as a bayari, a person who maintained a bayara or an orchard. But there was one massive obstacle which kept this dream just out of reach for the peasants of Palestine. Palestine's previous cash crop, cotton, could be grown basically all over Palestine. And it took about five to six months for a cotton plant to mature. That means that within a year of planting the seed, you could start seeing a return on your investment. Do you have any idea how long it takes an orange tree to mature? somewhere between 7 to 10 years. That means that from the time you plant the first seed, it could be a decade before you export your first box of oranges. So sure, some peasants could partake in the citrus boom if they somehow had the financial resources to withstand a decade without an income. More often than not, Yafis peasants found themselves either selling off the lion's share of their land to wealthy urban notables in the hope that they could survive long enough to plant orange trees on a sliver of the land that they once owned, or they sold off the whole plot of land to these same effendis and resigned themselves to the role of managers on land that they previously owned. And so there you have it. As Palestine catapulted into the modern age, its winners and losers found themselves 
feeling very differently about what the future had in store. The hardest part about recording this episode is that in the Palestinian collective memory, I know that Yaffa's orange groves have crystallized as symbols of a paradise lost. For victims of Palestine's ethnic cleansing in 1948, the loss of the citrus groves was an incredibly painful and traumatic experience. Coastal Palestinians used to gather with their families in these orchards. And later, in the early 20th century, Palestinians even began holding weddings under the shade of Yaffa's orange groves. But for Palestine's Fallahin, their paradise was already lost by the time those trees were ready to harvest. Thank you.